Hello and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today we're discussing violence against women and how it is understood within our society. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Nancy Lombard, a reader in sociology and social policy at GCU and a violence against women campaigner. Nancy, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Thank you. I think the best place to start is with the definition of violence against women. What do we mean by that? Violence against women is also known as gender-based violence and we're looking at violence specifically experienced by women and this can take the form of physical, sexual, psychological harm and also emotional abuse which is most recently termed as coercive control which is a pattern of behaviour that can isolate people can monitor other people's behaviour and it can control people and also deprive people of their liberty. So this is a form of behaviour that's experienced by women and generally perpetrated by men. Is that gaslighting you're sort of talking about? Yes, yeah. So there is an element of gaslighting, so telling someone that actually the behaviour they're experiencing isn't actually Mm. violence and and getting them to to think that it's all in their head. So that's an element of that too. How likely are women to face gendered violence in their lifetime? So there's different estimates and obviously because um, it can be a behaviour that women don't necessarily report, so it's not always recorded, but we know that generally between one in three or one in for women will experience violence against women in their lifetime and usually from a man that they know. When we use the term gender-based violence, does that include men? So when we talk about gender-based violence, we're talking about violence that people experience because of their gender. So in Scotland, we have a gender-based definition, which is unique to Scotland. Um, The rest of the UK has a gender-neutral definition. Um, So this means that the Scottish government recognised that women are more likely, because of their gender and because of inequality, are more likely to experience these forms of, of violences against them. Tell me about your background, Nancy. How did you get into studying gender-based violence? When I was 18, I volunteered at a local refuge in Burnley, um, where I grew up. And it was mainly something something to do, but I was also interested in violence against women and, and elements of that, but I didn't really know much about it. But I just kind of wanted to give something back to the community. So I started as a volunteer And then when I came to university, um, I became interested in in feminism and and looking more directly at Mm -hmm. gender. Then I have done research for different universities and also I worked in a women's refuge down in London. And it was whilst working in the refuge in London that I just, I became quite frustrated. It felt like you know, women would turn up with the children, they'd, they'd move into the refuge, sometimes they'd return, sometimes we'd find them somewhere else to live. But when they'd gone, they were just replaced by more women. So it just felt like this merry-go-round of, of women turning up and finding somewhere else, but they were always replaced by more. And I just felt that something needed to change, something needed to be put in place to, to prevent the violence from happening in the first place. And I saw a PhD advertised in The Guardian up in Glasgow and came for the interview. And that's that's how I started here at GCU many, many years ago. One of the studies that you've conducted about trying to understand violence, it was with uh, school children in Glasgow. You interviewed 89 school children. You asked them about their perceptions of violence against women. Can you talk to me about that study? 
Yeah, so this, this study formed the basis of my PhD. And when I started it originally, the idea was to, to work with secondary school children because the idea was that they were in relationships that they knew Mm -hmm. um, about dating they knew about these forms of behavior Um, but my argument was that this research had had been done time and time again and nothing was really changing and so that's why I decided to look at primary school children and to work with them so I managed to get into six schools in Glasgow and they were from very different areas of Glasgow, so very leafy suburban areas, um, wealthy areas of Glasgow and more deprived areas of, of Glasgow as well. And whilst Glasgow isn't ethnically diverse, more uh, the, the schools that I went in were, were representative of the population mm-hmm. of, of Glasgow. So as, as great a range as, as you could get, really. So I spoke to the children. I did different methods. I used different methods and spoke to them about their own lives, their own experiences of, of friendships, their own understandings of, of men and women and boys and girls and, and gender more generally, and also about violence against women. The findings showed that young people would naturalise a lot of violence that women experienced. So they saw it as something that, that men did, that biologically men were bigger, they were stronger, and they were more likely to be violent. Right, OK. They also normalised a lot of the behaviour in terms of that's what happened within a relationship, that's what women experienced, that's what they experienced mm-hmm. themselves as, as girls. So one of the the most interesting findings was how they understood violence. So when I said to them, what is violence? They would talk about how it involved two men in a public place. There was a a physical response, so a a black eye or a broken arm um, and a consequence. So Mm -hmm. they were arrested and taken to prison. And they replicated this understanding within the school yard. So they would see that when two boys were fighting in the yard, it was in a public place. And they, the teachers would come along and say, you know, don't do that. And they would be reprimanded and given mm-hmm. a detention. But what it didn't contextualise was girls' experiences of, of violence. So girls' experiences that they spoke to me about would happen within a cloakroom or a classroom when, when someone didn't see this behaviour. They would tell the teacher that a boy had done this to them. They'd They'd hit them or they'd pulled the hair, they'd ping the bra, they'd done something that they didn't, some behaviour that they didn't want to experience. And the teacher would often say, it's fine, just ignore him. He probably didn't mean to, he did it because he liked you, and just go away and forget about it. That's quite troubling, that seems to normalise that sort of behaviour. Exactly, yeah. And because there wasn't any consequence, the boy wasn't challenged about that behaviour, the girls normalised it and then from what we know about women in general, this this continues throughout their life, that they normalise a lot of their experiences that they might have every day, such as sexual harassment. Were you surprised that children thought this? Yes, very surprised. Teachers, um, when I went back and spoke to teachers, they were also surprised, also by how they minimised um, the reactions of girls as well and they were quite shocked because they could see that that's something that they did, but hadn't really understood the importance mm-hmm. of, of doing that um, and the consequences of doing that as well. So what can teachers do then to stop that from happening and to take it more seriously? Well, one of the, the things that I've spoken to teachers about is letting people speak about their experiences and, and challenging and understanding in the in the way that we, we, would, we would do with women. You know, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. That must have been really troubling for you. What can we do to make that better? Or 
taking the ownership themselves and, and challenging the boy about that behaviour and making sure there was some consequence in the same way um, that a boy would do that. One of the other main findings was how young people justified violence against women and this is where the gendered element very much came in. So I used, they're called vignettes, which are short stories, which you use the third person and I used three um, different short stories based on what the young people had talked to me about. And there was one short story about a a boy um, not wanting his girlfriend to wear certain clothes because he didn't like the way that other boys looked at her. The other story was about someone, a woman going out in the afternoon and coming home and a man's dinner wasn't ready and he hit her. And another story about a woman who had an affair with someone else and um, a partner hit her, saying that she deserved it. I used these um, as a basis for discussion and the justification that came through in these stories was very stark. So young people used how they understood relationships to happen with men being in power and um, women not having that power and women being expected to take a certain role. So women were expected to behave in a certain way, to dress in a certain way, to not attract male behaviour. They, they were described as, as dressing in a slutty way, as exposing themselves, as revealing themselves. They were talked about in terms of having, they should make the dinner. That's why he was angry, because it, she hadn't made the food. And because she'd had an affair, then, then she did deserve to be reprimanded in this way. That's quite scary that kids have that attitude mm-hmm. at such a young age. What I found even more fascinating was, because I was equally as shocked as you are, Craig, the, the discussion over the vest, um, the, the clothes that one of the women was wearing, mm-hmm. I was very shocked by this reaction, expecting girls especially to be more, well, I can wear what I want, I can do what I want. So I turned that story on its head and said, OK, so Lee wears vest and, and jeans and Claire doesn't like that because she says that other girls look at him what should happen there and the reaction was incredibly dichotomous in terms of well she can't tell him what to do she can't tell him what to wear she's not the boss of him so it was a very gendered reaction and Mm -hmm. that it was that particular story that that created this this very stark gendered dynamic and that's why rather than talking more generally about violence against women when I went back to the schools I said we need to to take that back further and actually talk about how young people understand gender and how their understandings of gender inequality inform these attitudes. So what can we do to change these attitudes about gender inequality? Well, one of the things that I did initially was I went to a big conference and spoke to head teachers in Glasgow about the reactions of, of the children and the opinions that they had. And obviously the head teachers were very shocked. Mm. So I worked with Glasgow City Council to devise training for schools in what's called a whole schools approach. So rather than someone going in and delivering training to one teacher and then that teacher going on to to deliver that to other people. This was a way of talking to all the teachers, all the staff, the head teacher, the janitor, the admin staff. They would all be in a room with me and we'd have a session where we talked about gender equality. We talked about unconscious bias. We talked about the opinions that they held Mm -hmm. and how those could be transferred to children. We talked about how children used the space within schools how children were divided. So one of the things that it really highlighted was that many teachers still lined children up in boys' and girls' lines. And when I challenged this, saying that that led to to divisions to boys and girls seeing themselves as different, a lot of the teachers 
it, it kind of clicked and thought mm. because the the way I described that was you wouldn't use any other means to divide children. You wouldn't divide children by ethnicity. You wouldn't divide children yeah. into able-bodied and disabled mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing by creating this this division is telling them that they're different from each other. So a lot of the the schools, the evaluations from the work showed that teachers changed their practice in this way. That is just one teacher or a school um, changing the practice. And obviously there's lots of schools in, in Glasgow. One of the other ways that this has been picked up is by NHS Scotland, who have devised a gender-friendly nursery award where they use my training to show how having these attitudes to violence against women and very limited ideas about gender can impact on on children's ambitions it can impact upon their understandings of of boys and girls and and violence to to be more accepting of perpetrating violence and experiencing violence and that's something that's been very popular in Glasgow and and is being rolled out throughout Scotland as well. Yeah so I was going to ask how has the training been received? In in general I love doing the training but there's only one of me um so I trained trainers in Glasgow City Council and now they train probation teachers Mm -hmm. who go on to to teach in in Glasgow schools. So it's been received on the whole very well. There's been some reactions, maybe from some right-wing elements of the media that have seen it as maybe politically correct. So there was an article in in the Daily Mail arguing that that this shouldn't happen, that we shouldn't be talking to, to children about these things. But we often find that that reaction is implicit when we talk about sexual health and relationship education, that that, that shouldn't be talked to about children as young as four. But what we found is that if we give children a language to understand things mm. and in a way and use that language and talk about what children are interested in, then we can start exploring these issues very early and without it being, uh, this is what you should think and this is how you should behave. Um, so children, it's it's about respect and it's about children respecting each other. And this is across gender, it's across ethnicity, mm-hmm. it's across disability. So all those different aspects of identity, it's rooted in that equality and respect to gender. Sounds like it sort of ties into sex education. Mm-hmm. Do children need better sex education at school? Yes, I think they do. And a lot of um, the violence against women work has tied in. You're right in in that way. The work that happens in Glasgow has a very interesting feature of gender and where they've talked about gender equality and they've talked about consent within relationships. And obviously that's geared towards different ages and stages of, of, of children. But again, it can be quite piecemeal. It can be very reliant on an enthusiastic teacher with some knowledge who's delivering that. Someone else who isn't as enthusiastic or doesn't really agree that children should be taught this, it can be taught in, in different ways mm. depending on the teacher. So the the approach isn't uniform yet. And I think incorporating that within the curriculum more and expecting that to be taught in the same way that we expect English and and maths to be taught generically across the board, I think that will help. You hear a lot about children accessing internet pornography, how it's just a couple of clicks away. Mm -hmm. Does that damage their perception to sex and gender? I think definitely in terms of of issues around consent. Obviously, pornography has always been around, but it might have been a magazine, whereas now anyone can kind of access Mm. pornography if they can access the internet. I don't think it provides healthy messages about relationships. 
or healthy messages about women or also about men. I think sometimes we've got to also look at, at how men can view pornography and, and see this as, as a form of masculinity that they don't necessarily adhere to. And we need to give men different forms of, of positive masculinities that they can go to rather than thinking, well, this is what a real, in inverted commas, man does. Mm. And we've got to look at issues of consent. A lot of the pornography online is very violent, very exploitative, gives a particular message about women. So we do need to find ways to counter that because we can't get rid of pornography on the internet, but we need to give children positive ways to, to understand relationships and, and to counter the, the, the pornography that they might experience online. Nancy, some of your research has been cited in the Scottish Parliament. It was in a debate a few years ago. How important is it that your work is taken on at a governmental level? For me, it's it's very important. The research that I do, I do because I want to change the world. I want to change how people understand violence against women and I want to make that difference. So the, the research was, was talked about in, in three different parliamentary discussions and also I was invited to be part of the strategy group that devised the new law on domestic abuse. So to me it's a way to show that, that my research has made a difference um, which is good for me as an academic but what's more important is, is seeing those changes happen. Mm-hmm as a result of, of those findings. I work very closely with a lot of women's groups, um, a lot of charity and, and the police, and I think doing that shows that these messages are very integrated, so it's not just one expert having an opinion, it's lots of different opinions that are informing mm-hmm. um, the Scottish Government, and I think the Scottish Government listens to all these different messages and, and takes them on board, and that's important. Now, more recently, you co-authored a study into links between domestic abuse and football, and it ties back to a fairly tired old adage that supporters, if your team loses, you go up the road, you hit the wife. I mean, and it found the research found that football is scapegoated as a trigger for mm-hmm. domestic abuse. Could you tell me a bit about that study? Um, the Scottish Government commissioned a literature review into... Um, there was a lot of studies looking at sport and football in general, and the links to violence. So we did, with the Scottish Centre for Crime and Justice Research, we co-authored a literature review that looked at all the different studies, and we found that a lot of the research focused on quantitative data, which is data that includes numbers, and it showed rises in certain forms of, of violence during certain games. But to us, there wasn't anything to contextualise that data, so we applied for some funding to talk to different stakeholders about their understandings of the apparent links between football and domestic abuse. So we asked stakeholders to come together. We had um, survivors, we had women's organisations, we talked to the police and also the SFA. And we talked to them about their understandings of of the, the research and also the links or the causal links that were presented as as fact. What we found was that the media liked to to create a link, a causal link. So when there was an old firm game, in particular Mm. in Scotland, they liked to demonstrate that there were more incidents of of domestic abuse. So our research from from talking to to stakeholders and also looking at, at the figures in relation to this found that the relationship between football and domestic abuse was complex and contested and that there were a lot of contributory factors 
that were identified, such as alcohol, the weather, expectations around a match, who was going to win, the team affiliations, what kind of match it was, whether it was an all-firm match, the rivalry between those teams as mm -hmm. well. Also links between gendered norms around masculinity, which was more clear-cut when it came to football than other sports, okay. like looking at cricket or, or rugby. And also these ideas around entitlements that we know link very closely with hegemonic masculine identities. And we found that a lot of the research oversimplified these facts because we know that domestic abuse does seem to, to rise when there is a football match, but often that can be linked to more police being put onto these matches. We found that sometimes it was women had the space to, to ring a helpline when their partner was out at a match. And we also found that it wasn't helpful to reduce domestic abuse to specific incidents yeah. rather than looking at that pattern of abuse that's ongoing and to look at that one incident as happening during a football match. We also found that there were men who didn't support football who were still domestic abusers and also lots of male football fans who wouldn't ever even think of abusing the wives. And the SFA, that was really important to them because they felt that football was often used as a scapegoat mm. and that all football fans were, were seen as potential domestic abusers. And we worked very closely with them and they were very keen... To, to get that message across. And we also talked to them about the powerful position that they're in mm -hmm. as an association in terms of having a platform to promote positive masculine identities, you know, to challenge things like homophobia, challenge yeah. racism, because we know a lot of these ideas are, are linked mm. um, and can be linked. So, so it was a very positive study in terms of getting lots of people talking about this. Maybe not so positive that it didn't give the responses that some people wanted. They wanted that clear-cut yeah. identification that domestic abuse causes football and how can we go about that? That's quite unhelpful. It's a very complex yep. issue. So yep. for the, the media to just link the two of them yep. together, that really yeah. doesn't help. Yeah, and I think that's what the media does. They want, they want a headline, you know. So when it's the sunny day and domestic abuse rates increase, they want us to say, actually, it's the sunshine, whereas really it's not. It's men's mm -hmm. behaviour. And that's what it comes down to all the time, that there might be... There, there aren't those causal links that the media want to create. We need to look at men's behaviour and we need to challenge that first and foremost. Now, Nancy, away from your academic career, you've got a fairly hectic home life. You're the mother of five children and your eldest son, Dylan, he was born with mandibular dysplasia, or MDP, yes. and there's about 10 people in the whole world who have this condition. Can yeah. you, you talk to me about Dylan? Yeah, so Dylan is 16 and he he was a normal baby when he was born. And when he was 18 months, he lost a lot of weight and was very poorly and nobody knew what was wrong with him. And as a mother, especially with the first, your first child, you, you, you worry a lot, mm -hmm. um, you know, the constant trips to the, the hospital. And no one really had an answer. And the doctors would say, we think it's leukaemia, we think it's cancer, we think it's muscular dystrophy, and they'd do a test and then we'd find out that it wasn't, sigh of relief, and then there was another, oh, but we think it could be this. And Dylan's, the first six years of Dylan's life were very much a medical merry-go-round, mm -hmm. um, just constant tests, constant worry, and we could never really enjoy the little boy that we had. 
as he became older, it became clearer that he was going to live with this condition and that there wasn't going to be a way to cure this. But my main worry was always that it was life-limiting and not knowing what it was always kind of played on, on the back of my mm-hmm. mind. I think this is one of the reasons that I'm I'm so passionate about research impact and research findings because there was one day here at GCU I was having my lunch at my computer and looking at the BBC website and I saw a man on a news story on a bike and I thought it was Dylan and I looked and I thought well it can't be because he's in his mid-twenties and I looked again and I thought no that man looks just like my son. And I rang the geneticist at the hospital because I had the telephone numbers of all, all the doctors <laughs> and just said, look at this website, it's Dylan. And and she looked at it while we're on the phone and she just said, good grief, I'm going to ring. Mm. And the story was about a, a man with a very rare condition who'd just been diagnosed as having MDP by professors in Exeter. So she said, right, leave it with me. I'm going to ring Exeter and find out more. How did you feel during this period where you think after all these years you've kind of made a breakthrough as to Dylan's condition? it, it, It was a whole range of emotions, really. I mean, I felt excited and I felt worried and I felt just kind of shocked, really. I just, I didn't really know what to feel. Relief. Lots of things I I knew I knew he had the same thing, so I just I wanted that confirmation. And you came across this webpage purely at random, just flicking through yeah. in your lunch. So basically, the Tom Staniford, the, the man in the mm-hmm. picture, was a paracyclist, Paralympian, but he needed to have a condition to be able to take part in the Olympics. Right. But he didn't have a con- he didn't have a name for his condition like us. He didn't really know what was wrong with him. So he'd approached the University Hospital in Exeter. They'd done a number of tests and found that a name for his condition. They'd found a gene that was missing, or the way they described it to us, it was a spelling mistake in a big book, just one little spelling mistake. That that was the only gene that, that was wrong. And that meant that he didn't have any body fat, he was deaf, it meant he, he found it very difficult to walk. He didn't have any subcutaneous fat on his on his feet. He had very limited movement in his in his bones, and that. But he he would be able to to live his life within the normal. To mm-hmm. kind of you know it, it it wasn't it wasn't a life limited condition, and then the geneticist rang me back and said, oh actually they've got some of Dylan's DNA because part of the over the years, we'd fired Dylan's bloods and DNA and pictures all the way around the world because mm. it was just people looking for an answer. In the same way that academics have a study, he was the study of lots of academics in Glasgow whose, whose life work it was to find out the name or, or what was actually wrong with him. And three weeks later, they ran after running some tests on DNA for Dylan, we got the news that actually Dylan did have the same condition as right. this man and that he was one of 13 people 13 in the people, world. 13 people, my goodness. So he was almost one in a billion. And I just cried and cried and cried because it was just such a sense of relief. I mean, by this point, Dylan was 10, and it just meant that I knew what it was and I knew that I could work with that. I could work with the medical professionals. We could limit a lot of the the issues that Dylan had in terms of, of it was more about prevention mm-hmm. rather than cure, but it meant that we could make his life a lot more comfortable knowing what to expect, especially because Tom was maybe 24. So that kind of gave us a, a time period of 14 years mm-hmm. to be able to kind of see in the future. And 
it just gave us a lot of answers that we'd we'd waited a long time for and also for Dylan as well so Dylan looks very differently in his face and he'd had a lot of issues with people calling him names in the street he still has that he deals with it incredibly well but it meant that we could access charities and organizations that could help support mm-hmm. him with this as well and also Tom Staniford is is um, an ambassador a big charity called Gene for Jeans, which okay. Dylan fundraises for every Brilliant. year. Because for Dylan to have someone that looks just like him is so important, mm-hmm. and I don't think that can be kind of underestimated how important that is for a teenage boy to yeah. to have someone to look up to. Now Dylan did meet someone who also yes. is MDP. Can you tell me about that? Yep. So we went to we go on big camping holidays, as you said. We've got lots of children, <laughs> so we we have to fit them all in a tent. And we decided to go to Scandinavia this year. And we went to Norway as part of the trip and there was a man called Lasse who lived five hours out of Norway and I told Lassie that we were coming. I didn't tell Dylan. Dylan also has autism, so you've kind of got to prepare him for things, okay. but but also not surprise him. And so we told Lassie that we were coming and Lassie and his sister drove for five hours to meet us in Oslo and it was incredible. It was really overwhelming. Dylan we told him that, that he was going to be arriving and the two of them could chat and and just have someone else that experienced yeah. the, the same life that they'd experienced. They looked like brothers and for, for Dylan, it was incredibly emotional. He loved to be able to talk to Lasse and to share those same experiences. But it also wasn't at all about negativity. There was a lot of positivity that came out of that Good. meeting. And that's the, the wonder of, of social media, because Dylan can be in contact with these people that mm-hmm. live around the world, but have this really unique connection yeah. to him. That's an incredible story. Yeah, no, it is. And I, I think for me, I wouldn't have known about Tom. I wouldn't have known about this had an academic not shared their research in an accessible way on the BBC website. You know, it was in Nature magazine. I don't read that. You know, I don't read these biological journals. So to put that research out there in a way that normal people can access it, that I was able to do that. And I I think that's what, as academics, we owe as part of our research to, to do that. Yeah, to inspire you with the way you approach your research. It does. It really does, because I know how much of a difference that one... BBC article made to to my life, to Dylan's life, to all our family's life. So to me, part of my job and and something that I really hold dear is is to share that that research and try and make a difference to somebody else. Nancy, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast.